please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And while you're doing that, um, I want to make mention that uh, uh, today was going to be the day that we were going to install Greg Robinson as our next elder. We we're going to have a time of uh, laying hands on him and praying over him, but a number of our elders are out. Uh, gone this week or uh, uh, sick and, and some uh, other issues. And so uh, we're going to postpone that for a few weeks, but, but stay tuned. We'll, we'll be able to have an opportunity to pray for him and, and have that celebration here in just a few weeks. Uh, this, the, today's message is going to be a little bit different. We've been moving forward in, in 1 Corinthians, sometimes slowly, but we've been moving forward. And today we're going to take a step back. And I mentioned last week that there were a couple of verses there in chapter 12 that spoke of the Trinity and as I, and I was kind of planning out some of these messages and working through the text even before the, the series started, I, I, I sensed that um, it would be important for us to linger over these verses and to uh, even do some backtracking in the book at some passages that we glossed over to reflect a little bit on the Trinity. Uh, to my shame, I have to admit, I don't believe I've ever preached a sermon on the Trinity, which is sort of indicative of how the church often feels about the Trinity. We're, we're baffled by the Trinity, if we're honest. Uh, so often we feel even that we, we need to apologize for this unique doctrine, this three-in-one God that we worship. Sometimes we give the impression that the doctrine of the Trinity belongs in the back room at a family gathering with that crazy uncle who drinks just a little too much. Like, we know we're supposed to keep him around, but everybody's embarrassed by him. And so, so often in the church, we, we simply avoid this crucial and important doctrine. One writer says, we tend to acknowledge the doctrine with a polite hospitality, but not welcome it with any special warmth. We dare not retreat from theology simply because it feels over our head. You see, I've got this crazy notion that theology ought to be practical, that studying your God, getting to know the God that we worship and serve, ought to make a difference in the way that we live. Or it could be said in this way, theology ought to lead to doxology, to worship. Right knowledge of God should lead to right living and right worship. In fact, just to, uh, for a shameless plug, uh, Hunter and I are uh, starting some dialogues about the importance of theology being practical, and the first one will be on our website this week. We're going to have just kind of a series of podcasts talking about the practicality of theology, so stay tuned for that if you're interested in diving into that idea a little bit deeper. But the Trinity is not just theoretical. This is a doctrine that is practical. Dorothy Sayers uh, or, or another writer says that churches have discovered this time and again. We re, when we retreat from the task of coming to grips with the doctrine of God, practical Christian life suffers. Spiritual, spirituality becomes vague and mushy. We don't want that. We don't want a, a spirituality that's vague and mushy. We don't want a knowledge of God that's, that's uh, surface level and merely um, just just shallow. We don't want our relationship with God to be that way. And so that means from time to time, we need to be willing to wade into the deep waters to understand what the scripture teaches regarding the deep things of God. So last week, as we read this passage, you may have noticed that all three persons of the Trinity came uh, and, and, and made their appearance in this text in 1 Corinthians 12. And I just want to read verses 3 through 6. And then we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. He says, therefore, I want you to understand 
that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to go on and talk a little bit about the gifts. Uh, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, speaking of Jesus there. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The book of 1 Corinthians is actually a, a very, is, is, is just loaded with Trinitarian theology. If you want to go backwards, you can, or just listen along. But um, we saw it back in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not pro- come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, reference to the Father there, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, the Son, in him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. Paul, right from the get-go, right from the early chapters of the book, chapter 2, he brings us uh, face-to-face with a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But that's not all. We saw it in chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, We see here Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father. Uh, He says, um, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, in chapter 8, verse 6, we see the Father and the Son. He says, yet for, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. And through whom we exist. The Trinity is indeed a mystery. It is difficult to comprehend. And for many of us, things which are deemed hard to understand, well, we simply leave them on the shelf. Uh, my father in law absolutely hates computers. To my knowledge, he has never owned a computer in his life, he's never sent an email, never been on social media, for which he's probably much better off. He feels like even getting too close to a computer will mean that like, his identity will be stolen. I don't think he's ever bought anything over the internet. Like, he, is, he just is completely anti-computer. He doesn't understand them and doesn't want anything to do with them. And I think sometimes when it comes to difficult doctrines of Scripture, especially something like the Trinity, we think, okay, I know I'm supposed to believe that, but I don't know. It just sounds so confusing. Uh, just leave it alone. And we dare not do that. We dare not do that. Belief in the Trinity is one of the distinctive marks of Christianity. It sets us apart from the monotheism of Judaism and Islam. Dorothy Sayers poignantly summarized what many Christians believe about the Trinity. She said, the Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, and the whole thing is incomprehensible. Something put in by theologians to make it more difficult, nothing to do with daily life or ethics. That couldn't be further from the truth. Just because something is a mystery, it doesn't necessarily follow that thing is untrue, that it does not exist or it's not practical. We don't have to fully understand something for it to be true. And we would expect that an almighty transcendent God would cause us to scratch our heads, at least some of the time. Who wants to worship a God that you can explain in a a 20-minute YouTube video? What kind of God would he be if we were able to fully explain and unpack his nature and his character and his ways. Part of the 
impetuous for worship is that we come to this God who we don't understand, who is far above us. He is mysterious. Just because something is mystery doesn't mean we should shy away from it. So I want to just talk a little bit this morning, and we're not going to, um, by any means, unpack everything that could be said about the Trinity. I read a lot of things this week that even uh, just kind of went over my head. Uh, there's so much about this doctrine that we don't fully understand, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't attempt to plumb its depths and at least scratch the surface, which is all we can do in our brief time together here this morning, to understand a little bit about who God truly is. So I just want to say a few things, first of all, here about the biblical doctrine of the triune God. The biblical doctrine of the triune God. None of us love it when people uh, misrepresent us, especially if it's slanderous. We appreciate the truth being told about us, whether it's a story, whether it's about something we did, uh, our history, even just getting our name right, right? It's, it's, those things are important, that people accurately represent who we are and our beliefs and our intentions and our, our story. How much more important is it for us to speak rightly of the creator of the universe? That's what we should attempt to do when we study theology. It's absolutely crucial we speak rightly about God. We dare not fashion a God after our own whims or desires. We want to worship God in truth, which means we ought to seek to know and understand who this God really is. Some object that the Bible never uses the word Trinity. That is true. The word Trinity never occurs in Scripture. That doesn't mean the doctrine is not there. Trinity is the doctrine of the Trinity is deduced from Scripture. As you walk from Genesis to Revelation, you unpack this idea that there is one God who is three. Scripture is really clear about there being one God. The Israelites uh, re recited the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was so clear to Israel from the Old Testament that we worship one God. But we get inklings throughout the Old Testament that there's more to him than just a single, single being, the, the monotheism of Islam. Even from the early pages of Scripture, Genesis 1.26, we hear a verse like this, and it makes us wonder, what else is there? When God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. What are you telling us about yourself, God? We know that you're one. How come we hear pronouns like us and our as you refer to yourself? Well, as we go throughout Scripture and with the unfolding revelation of God, we, we get a further picture. The New Testament brings so much more light to this triune God who is in the Old Testament but is not made is explicit. One writer says, we also find the identity of God is defined by the sending Father, a sent Son, and a Spirit bestowed by the Father through the Son. All that is made explicit in the New Testament. This Father who has sent the Son, who is equal with the Father, in the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son being given to his followers. 
we see the Trinity in places. I mean, we just don't have time to walk through all of the references. It would, it would take us hours and hours and hours to even come close to touching uh, the scriptures that bring all these, this, this concept together. In Matthew 28, 19, for example, we're told to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What a majestic statement of the triune God, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. So the early church and in the first couple of centuries of the church, the church fathers spent a great deal of time wrestling with the Bible and the scriptures to try to understand and unpack and, and clearly articulate this doctrine. And they came up with the, the teaching of the Trinity as they brought together and synthesized the scriptures. Theologians such as Tertullian or Athanasius and Augustine spilled a great deal of ink clarifying and articulating this important truth and fighting for it. Their goal was to bring the text together in a way that did justice to the whole counsel of Scripture and to be precise in their wording. So as Christians, when we talk about the Trinity, we're trying to provide coherence to the collective narrative of Scripture about God as Father, God the Son, and God as Spirit. If we're trying to clarify what we're saying and what we're not saying about God, let's Look at just a few propositions about the Trinity. Simple propositions that I think we would all understand by themselves, but all together they, they, they bring us to this doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that the Father is God. The Bible constantly reveals God as Father. It doesn't mean that he's a man, but it means that as he reveals himself, though he's spirit, he reveals himself as Father. There is no moment in which the Father is not the Father. It's who he is. Secondly, we See scripture teaching us that the Son is God. There's a second person in the Trinity. He is referred to the Son. The Son is and always has been the Son. Scripture teaches us he's completely equal with the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father, I and the Father are one. Scripture teaches that the Son freely obeys the Father. And the Father in turn exalts the Son to the highest place. In a beautiful verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. What a, what a phrase. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. God's majestic glory that spreads out the beams of that radiance which touch earth are the Son. The Son who has become flesh to live among us. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son is God. But scripture also teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God. The word teaches us that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son and applies the redeeming work of the Father through the Son to you and I as believers, it in turn gives us access to the Father through the Son. This causes us to scratch our head. This is not, this is not simple entry-level theology, but it is absolutely crucial as it informs how we relate to God. There are all kinds of things happening behind the scenes that have been able to bring us to God. 
in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all at work making that happen. As we seek to clarify this further, uh, we need to make sure that we say that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There is only one God that we worship. And so uh, I find this, uh, this image helpful in, in helping clarify our thinking. Uh, this graphic takes the biblical picture of the Trinity really as far as we can. Most illustrations about the Trinity are a bad idea because all of them go wrong at some point. For example, we've probably all heard the illustration of the Trinity is like an egg. Okay, don't use that illustration. I've used it. It's, it is a bad illustration. It distorts the actual biblical picture of the Trinity. Here's why. We say, okay, there's one egg here, but it's made up of three parts, the yolk, the white, and the shell, yet there's one egg. The problem is that an egg is composed of three parts. God is not. Uh, the, the, uh, the substance of the shell, the yolk, and the whites, they're all very different things. Scripture teaches God is one in his substance or essence. That is, the full nature of what God is, the mode of his divine being, is not divided up. We don't serve multiple gods. We have to be very careful with our wording. We believe that the Bible teaches that God is one with himself, self-same, indivisible in his being and his operations, and God is not composed of parts. God is pure God and nothing but God is God. That's a quote quote from uh, Scott Swain. Hang with me here. I'll show us in a moment why this is practical. The Trinity means that we worship a God in three persons who is one in essence. The Athanasian Creed, likely written in the 5th century that helped flesh this idea out, says this, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. As you can understand, it could be easy to veer off course when talking about the triune God. And so there are a couple of misconceptions that we want to touch on. Maybe these are things that you found yourself saying or believing about the Trinity. The first misconception that I wrote down is that it's not important. Some of us believe that the Trinity is a dusty, complicated teaching that's not all that relevant. Let me challenge you on that if that's how you feel. Can you think of anything better in life, more important than life, in life, than knowing God? We sing a song, knowing you, knowing you, Jesus, it is the greatest thing. We sing that. Do we believe it? Do we believe that knowing God is and ought to be the highest aim in our life? Do we believe that relating rightly to this God makes a difference? To know him, we must learn to think rightly about him. There is nothing the Bible has to say about the nature and character of God that is not important. The Trinity is not a dusty, dry, academic teaching. It's crucial to how we relate to the God who loves us and who has saved us. <laughs> Another misconception I wrote down is that the Trinity is just a Catholic thing. Yeah, I've heard a lot of Catholics talk about that, write about that, and I'm not a Catholic, so I'm just going to brush that aside. It would be foolish. Yes, the, the Catholic Church 
um, in most cases, has a stronger Trinitarian theology than most evangelical Christians. We've written it off, we've brushed it aside, and the Catholic Church, uh, to give them their credit, where credit's due, has, has long maintained uh, that this should be central to our faith. We would do well to learn from them on that point. The Trinity, another misconception, is that we have three gods. Again, that egg illustration comes to the forefront, that there are three different parts. And it could be easy for us to read about Jesus, read about the Spirit, read about the Father, and begin to speak in such a way as, the, as though we have three gods. Tritheism is the theological term for that. It's not what the Bible teaches. They're one. We could also have a misconception that was dealt with throughout church history um, and condemned as a heresy. It's called monarchianism. It's that the Father is superior to the Son, that we like we honor him more than we honor the Son, that Jesus came to this earth, and he said, I and the Father are one, but we're like, yeah, kind of, but we can see you, we can touch you, and there's this mysterious Father out there, and he's got to be way better. You're here doing his dirty work, and we're, we're thankful for that, but you're, you're not like on the same page as the Father. Another misconception is that God reveals himself as different persons, that he shows up at different times and in different forms. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. This is easy to be able to slip into this language. It's called modalism. If we've ever used the illustration of water, have you ever used the illustration? You don't have to raise your hand because I'm about ready to criticize it, but if you've ever used the illustration of water to represent the Trinity, uh, that water is sometimes, it's, 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 it's one thing, it's H2O, but it can sometimes be a vapor, sometimes can be a solid, sometimes can be a liquid. It's like the Trinity. No, it's not. That's modalism, an ancient heresy condemned by the church, that, that sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. It's so important that we carefully talk about and represent well our God. The Bible teaches he's three in one. The Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. The Spirit is always the Spirit. Three in one. So, why in the world does this matter? Why does this matter? If you joined, if you're a member here at Brown Corners Church, you signed a doctrinal statement tied in with the United Brethren in Christ that, that, that says that you agree, that you believe in this doctrine. In fact, any, any biblically sound church, I mean, Catholic, uh, Orthodox, Protestant, all will agree and affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. Every good Christian organization, probably many of you support uh, missionaries or other organizations doing charity work that are biblical, and you'll see it. Sometimes it's not at the top. We, we've moved inerrancy often to the top, but for years and years and years, for most of church history, the Trinity was right at the top of affirmations of faith. You will see that this is roundly proclaimed as crucial and important, as essential. But why? Why is it so important that we maintain this belief in the doctrine of the Trinity, the three in one. Well, we've already said it's so crucial that we think rightly about God. If we're going to know God, pursue God, we ought to think rightly about God. But there's more than that. And I, this is where I want it to become practical. I hope at least one of these things will challenge and encourage your heart this morning. First of all, to understand and for even God's love to exist, we need the Trinity. Think about this for a second. Without the Trinity... God would not have had love until he created us. 
because there was no opportunity for love to be demonstrated. If you can't demonstrate love, can love be present? The the demonstration of God's love began before creation. If we do away with the doctrine of the Trinity, we're saying that God needed us for a completeness. For him to actually be able to demonstrate his love, he needed us. And that's dangerous ground to be in. That God could not have been loving before creation. But when you have the Trinity, you recognize that throughout all eternity, the Father and Son and the Spirit existed in a perfect, perfect loving harmony. How that, exi- how that looked, how that played out, I-, I don't fully understand. But love could exist because of other persons in the Trinity. And so, God's creation, then us, his people, is not an opportunity for him to say, oh, I want to try this love thing out. But it's an overflow of the love that's already there within the three persons of the Trinity. You see, God's love for us could not exist without the Trinity. And all of a sudden, as we see that that creation has become an overflow, that redemption has become an overflow of his love, it becomes much deeper and more profound. I love what one Puritan had to say. He said, if God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. Apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there had never been a creation or a redemption. The Trinity is the foundation of God's love. One of the reasons that believing in the triune God is so crucial and so practical is it becomes the basis of his love. God did not need us to demonstrate love. Rather, he created us as an overflow of his inner Trinitarian love. And you see, that becomes practical because you and I, uh, unlike God, uh, we, we, we can't love. We can't love rightly. We can't love well. We don't have that within ourselves like God does. But as he gives us his Holy Spirit, that love can flow out of us from a different source. You see, without the Holy Spirit, we can't love. We can do nice things. We can do loving things. But we can't love the way that God loves. But with God in us, that love can flow out towards others. We call that the fruit of the Spirit, just one of them. There's more that we could say, but uh, the next reason that this doctrine is practical is because of the gospel. Listen, without the Trinity, there is no salvation. The gospel requires the Trinity. There's this great passage in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. I added a lot of these verses in my notes after we created the slide, so I, I didn't put these in here. But Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There are a lot of reasons uh, to a lot of ways in which we could explore this idea that without the Trinity, there's no salvation. 
for one, if you don't have the Father sending the Son, there's, there's, there's no way for this to take place, no way for there not to be an interruption somehow in the triune God. The, the Son had to be the one who was sent. There was no other way. And he had to be sent by someone, the Father. But to even explore it further, just think about it practically. This passage here in Galatians 4 mentions our adoption. It's only because there is a son that you and I can become sons and daughters. Is the doctrine of the adoption, um, is the doctrine of adoption precious to you? The, the fact that you and I as sinners, as those who stood on the outside, not just as unfriendly towards God, but the Bible says as enemies of God, could have the possibility, could have the opportunity to be brought into the family of God? We're not called just acquaintances of God. The Bible even, the Bible does refer us to us as friends of God, which in and of itself would be pretty cool, a whole lot better than where we were before. But Scripture goes even deeper. Through the blood of Christ, we can become the sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ. You can read about this in Romans 8. Romans 8 is a beautiful place to go to meditate on the Trinity. Think about this. Without the Son, you can't be a fellow son. But because there is a Son, we can be adopted and be co-heirs with the Son. The doctrine of the Trinity makes salvation possible. Kevin Van Hooser further explains this when he says that the integrity of the gospel is fatally compromised if either the Son or the Spirit is not fully God. If the Son were not God, he could neither reveal the Father nor atone for our sin. If the Spirit were not God, he could, uh, he could unite us neither to the Father and to the Son nor to one another. The gospel then requires a triune God. Wow. Thirdly, the third implication I wrote down is that of prayer. Is that of prayer. We cannot pray to the Father except through the Son. First uh, Timothy 2.5 tells us that there's one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. We could not go to the Father if it weren't for the Son. That's why we, we pray in Jesus' name. Furthermore, the Spirit guides us in prayer. In fact, the Bible even teaches that when, we, when he says pray in the Spirit, that somehow it's telling us that the Spirit is even the sphere in which our prayer happens. We go to the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. When you turn to Romans 8, I hope you take some time to look at Romans 8 today. You see, even in that passage alone, as it relates to prayer, we're told that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. It says this, with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes uh, some of us are a little bit like that in the morning before we've had our coffee. We just we communicate in grunts and groans and gestures. What, what, the, what the Bible is saying about the Holy Spirit is different there. The Holy Spirit understands that there are spiritual realities. There's, there's battles going on. There's hurt and, and sin in our heart that we're wrestling with that requires something even deeper than, than human language can figure out. The Spirit of God is groaning, interceding for you even at this very moment before the Father. How incredible is that? While you're sleeping, doing absolutely nothing consciously, 
the Spirit of God is interceding for you. Romans 8 goes on to tell us that it's not just the Spirit, but the Son is interceding for you. And that's what leads Paul to say, and I think it's, I didn't write it down, but I want to say it's verse 32. He says, if God can be for us, who in the world can be against us? The Spirit, the Son, the Father are all actively working together on your behalf 24 hours a day. You, not just the church in general, not just pastors or the, the, the really godly people or missionaries or those who write theological books that talk about the Trinity. You and me, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are thinking of and working for each and every one of us 24 hours a day. You see, when we begin to plumb the depths of the Trinity, this doctrine comes out of the ivory tower and right down to where our feet hit the pavement and meets us in the most important parts of our daily life. As you spend time in prayer today, as you lay your head down on the pillow tonight and offer up those final words of thanks or prayers for your family members or the people on your heart, know that all three persons of the Trinity are leaned in and they're hearing and they're amening the things that are true and they're working on your behalf. Prayer. The fourth one is worship. The fourth reason the Trinity matters, why this is a practical doctrine, is worship. Whenever we speak rightly of God, there should be worship. Because God is naturally mysterious and majestic, we should stand in awe and wonder. I've said this before, but there are some things, for, and it's probably different for each of us, there are places in this world that you can go. Maybe it's, it's somewhere on your own property or not too far away. Maybe it's the mountains, the ocean, uh, seeing a majestic landscape or a sunset. There's, there are things in this world that we see that just stop our breath every time. We behold and we just shake our head in wonder. And we just are in awe. You look at images that come back from the Hubble telescope that find some new galaxy or new formation and you just think, oh my, that's unbelievable. Well, when we encounter the God of the Bible, we should stop in our tracks in awe. When we reflect on who he is, we should, we should have times in our life where we're speechless. We don't know what to say. If, if we want to worship God in spirit and, and in truth, like Jesus said, then we must take careful stock of the God whom we worship. If we're to worship him as he is and not what we might conceive him to be, then our worship ought to give glory to the Godhead in all their fullness. One writer says, Worship is an intimate engagement with the triune God, where we experience God as Father, Christ as our brother, and the Spirit as our comforter. How about you? Does your worship look like that? Do you experience the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of Christ and his many ministries, the comfort of his spirit, his many ministries? Is your worship an intimate engagement with the triune God? Or do you settle for a superficial 
tip of the hat, a little wave as you walk out the door. John Owen, one of my favorite Puritan writers, in fact, we named our youngest son after him. He wrote, among his many books, he wrote one called Communion with God. In that book, he explores what it means to commune or to spend time in fellowship with each of the individual members of the Trinity. I commend it. It's not an easy work to get into. John Owen is famous for using, uh, he hates the period. And so his sentences go on and on and on. And so it's, it's not light work, but you will be blessed if you wade into these theological waters. Because Owen just says, what does it look like for each of us to spend time communing, communing with the Father? What does it look like for me to commune with the Son? What does it look like for me to commune with the Spirit? And how does that shape my worship and how I think of God? Oh, may we not be content with small and superficial thoughts of God. We do not praise a triune God as mere spectators or interested observers. This God, the three-in-one, majestic and glorious, has invited us into the divine life by pursuing us as Father, by redeeming us through His Son, and indwelling us by His Spirit. And all that should shape our worship. The Trinity should change how we worship God. And then finally, finally, the Trinity influences mission. As we go forth to serve the triune God, the Trinity models and motivates our mission. I love what Michael Byrd has said here. I, I, I couldn't say it any better, so I, I quote him at length here. He says, the quintessential example of mission derives from the Trinity. The Father offers up the Son to be broken, to suffer, to bear the Father's wrath. The Son leaves the perfect fellowship of the triune communion to be humiliated, deserted, and forsaken on earth. The Spirit is poured out on the earth to lead and guide you and I as believers, never exalting himself, but always pointing to the Son. Christian mission, in its own way, expresses what is true within the Godhead, because just as the Father sends the Son, so the Son sends us. So the Son sends us in the power of the Spirit. You remember Jesus said that? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. The Great Commission is an overflow of the Trinity. God is not calling us to do something that he's not already done. He sent the Son, his one and only Son, and in the same way, he sends you and I out into the world. Bird goes on to say, the sending of the church is a continuation of the sending of the Son and a procession of the Spirit, since God's purposes are realized by God working through his church to call, to create, to renew, and equip a people for himself. The church is the instrument of this triune God to go into the world and to radiate his glory. This church, us, we're the embassy of the kingdom of God. You and I were envoys, ambassadors of that kingdom. Ultimately, the church can only comprehend its missionary purpose within a Trinitarian framework of sending and being sent. All right, I'm going to stop there. We said at the outset, this is, we're not talking low shelf stuff here. I hope this morning, even if you didn't understand three quarters of what we talked about, I hope that your appetite is whetted, if, if nothing else, to leave here and say, I worship a God that I don't know like I should. 
Job once said in the midst of his sufferings, behold, God is great and I know him not. That is a great starting point. Don't feel ashamed if that's your heart cry. But let it be a a motivator. Let it be a starting point to say, I'm going to make it my life's work to know this God that I worship. This God who has loved me enough to save me. I want to know him. I put a couple of resources at the bottom of the notes uh, that you got uh, um, on the on the back of the bulletin there just as a place to get started if you'd like some some more resources email me i'd love to send you some more things these are just some some beginning uh beginning uh some of the the, the shorter books that uh, i kind or I, I dug into this week if you want to dive deeper uh, i've got lots of places uh, that i would love to send you may we never be content worshiping god superficially May our relationship with him not remain shallow. May we be willing to wade into the depths, at times over our heads, so that we might know this God more deeply, worship him more fully, and be engaged in his mission by the power of the Spirit whom he has given us. I want to close with a prayer. It's from John Stott. It's out there on the internet. In fact, we printed it off on this week's prayer guide. It's called John Stott's Trinitarian Prayer. We'll close with this prayer and then a a benediction, a Trinitarian benediction from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, Sanctifier of the people of God. We give glory to God the Father and to God the Son, and to God the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Oh God, that we would live this day in your presence. Lord Jesus, we pray that this day we may take up our cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, we pray this day that you would fill us with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God. Have mercy upon us and grant us the desire, the passion to pursue you in all your fullness, all the days of our life. Never content for superficiality in our knowledge of you, our relationship with you, and in 
our lives living out this doctrine with one another. Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.